from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that channels the human desire for justice into the malice of revenge. She's joining me today to talk about her recent novel, The Effects of Renarium, and her upcoming novel, On the Other Side Lies the Truth. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of F.R. Diaz. Francesca, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Happy to be here. Yes, thank you for joining me. Uh, I loved your absolute beast of a debut novel, The Effects of Renarium. And <laughs> thank you. And I'm looking forward to getting in depth with you about that, as well as your short stories, art, and your upcoming novel. Absolutely. Ready to get into it. So, one of the first things I noticed is that you're very good at conveying setting and atmosphere. I've never been to Puerto Rico before, but I felt like I was there when I read the beginning of your novel because you somehow conveyed the feeling of the environment. I could feel the warm climate on my skin. Absolutely. So how do you approach writing? Is it systematic and technical or purely an emotional stream of consciousness? Honestly, it's it's a little bit of both, but mostly emotional because when I create the story first, I create the actual story in my mind, but I don't create the characters per se. So there are people out there that create the characters first, but I didn't create Lilith first. I created the storyline first and I really wanted to create it between Puerto Rico and Kentucky um, just because Kentucky was one of my places where I was stationed at when I was in the military. So you kind of followed that trajectory from Puerto Rico to Kentucky, maybe not immediately after Puerto Rico, but one of the places you ended up? Yes, yes. I went from Puerto Rico to Texas and Texas to Kentucky, but I wasn't too long in Texas. I was more in Kentucky and uh, I chose Kentucky for the book because Kentucky is big. It's a big state. It's beautiful. And I feel like uh, a lot of the areas within Kentucky looks like places where people can go missing and never be found, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. If you had made the setting in Texas, I don't think it'd be very believable because it'd be too hot and humid for a serial killer to come yeah. out and do anything like. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Where in Texas, if you don't mind me asking? 
Oh, I was in a base. I could I could not tell you what area of Texas I was exactly at because I was only there for about two months. And it was in the very beginning of my military training. And uh, I was nowhere outside of the base. <laughs> I wonder if it was I, I work with a guy that used to work in Harker Heights, and I believe there's Mm-mm. a base. No, no, that doesn't, that sound, doesn't sound familiar at all. I know it okay. was an Air Force base, but it wasn't. I mean, I was Army, but they placed us in the Air Force base. It was uh, it was called Lackland, I think it was called. Uh, Lackland Air Force Base. Okay. Uh, wherever that's located at. You think I would know being a native Texan, but... Oh, are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Good God. Yeah, that's that's where the, uh, the serial killer joke came from, because... <laughs> I don't even want to. I don't even want to leave my apartment in the summer. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine doing something as labor intensive as being a serial killer. <laughs> honestly, honestly. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things that makes the story so tragic is how happy the story begins. Yeah. Rebecca, you know, she meets an honorable man that accepts her child as his own. And it seems like everyone's going to live happily ever after. But then the story takes a massive nosedive. Yes. So where did the idea for the premise of this story come from? So I was listening a lot to true crime podcasts for a while. So I work for the post office full time. And while I'm working for the post office as a carrier, I have this time where I'm delivering the mail and the packages and I'm listening to podcasts. And mostly it's just true crime because, I don't know, true crime is interesting. Mm. And in almost every single episode of the true crime of different types of podcasts that I listened to, it was mostly about missing women or children that were never found or found dead at some point years later. And I don't know, I've never been in those shoes of a person that has had a loved one disappear on them and not know anything about them and then find out years down the road that at some point they probably suffered because their corpse was found years later or whatnot. And some of these people are never found. So Mm. when I was listening to these podcasts, it really got to me because I could hear the families of the victims. And all I can think about is, my God, they're so strong because if it was me, I would lose my freaking mind. Mm. You know, my kid going missing or my my significant other or my mother or, you know, just any kind of scenario. And I said, why hasn't there been anyone that's completely broken their psyche and just kind of gone out there and just been like, you know, F it, I'm just going to get this person, you know, F what the police has to say, what anybody, I'm going to do this. And, you know, and then they go into this serial killer streak. So I was just like, you know what? That sounds like a pretty cool idea. And I went over it with my best friend. I went over it with my significant other and my mom, and they're all like, yeah, that would be pretty cool. So I was just like, that sounds that sounds like a plan. I guess I'm going to write this book and see how it goes. Awesome. Have you ever met anybody, just kind of as a brief aside, that is just like you, loves to listen to true crime podcasts about true accounts of people that have come up missing and you find out later that they were kidnapped, tortured, and the like, but... If you ask them if they watch horror movies or read like horror novels, they're like, oh, no, I can't handle that stuff. <laughs> Have you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, honestly, I don't understand those. Uh, those <laughs> Neither people, do I. Because <laughs> uh, to me, real life is uh, so much scarier to me. You know, people in general are unpredictable and scary. You know, you never know who you know. It could be a family member for all you know. And years down the line, you find something out of them that's 
absolutely terrifies you and you're just like, what the, this person is my blood or I don't know, my significant other or whatever it might be. And I, I don't understand why people are just like, oh, I won't watch a horror movie, but they'll watch, they'll watch these documentaries of real people getting slaughtered and found. <laughs> I just, it baffles me. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I can figure is maybe they just, they feel like it's something that'll never happen to them. It's like, right. it's like somebody that likes watching other people's drama taken to the next level. Right. You know? Right. I guess that might be a bad psychological thing in, of society. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To be more attracted to the a true crime instead of the fake monsters that we make up in our stories. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't really say that I enjoy other people's drama. I really do have a lot of empathy so I, if I see some drama unfold right in front of me, I kind of take it on like the discomfort. <laughs> like, yeah. I just don't want to see it. The gym I go to, this was a long time ago. I used to go the same time every day. And I used to always see this couple that would work out together and they were all kissy, kissy, lovey, lovey. So I was like, oh, this, you know, must be a new relationship. <laughs> well, then one day his wife showed up. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and it, everybody in the gym thought it was amazing. And I was just like, oh, this is making me really uncomfortable. I can eat the hell it's out of here. It's kind of like it makes you uncomfortable, but you can't look away. <laughs> yeah, like a train wreck. I just got to see what happens. But <laughs> exactly what I tried to portray in my book. Um it's kind of like that, like a train where like you, it's drama happening and you you don't want to look, but you also want to look because I'm integrating all of that horror into it afterwards. Because I do start off the story very beautiful. <laughs> and then I, I take a very deep, dark turn into, you know, this is how fast this could happen to anyone, you know, in real life. That's exactly why I did it that way. I didn't want to create a fake monster. I wanted to create something that could happen in real life and is much more scarier. Mm, definitely. Yeah, like what you're talking about scares me much more than the uh, possession of Emily Rose or, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or, absolutely. or whatever. Was it the possession or the taking? It was the possession, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, speaking of demons, <laughs> when I realized the main character's name was Lilith and found out what she was capable of. I thought of the demon Lilith. Yeah. And uh, and I wondered if she was an inspiration for the character's name. And sure enough, I found a description of the demon Lilith <laughs> on your social media. Yeah. And uh, in Judaic mythology, Lilith was Adam's first wife and mm -hmm. was cast out of the garden when she wouldn't submit to Adam. I think specifically he wouldn't submit to having sex with him in yeah. the missionary position. Yep. She wanted to be on top. Yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> So she was then demonized mm -hmm. and turned into like this succubus-like character that attacked men in their uh, sleep. Yep. So I definitely see a lot of parallels between the two <laughs> characters. But um, what aspects of the story of Lilith the demon did you want to convey in the story of Lilith Simmons? Well, here's a funny story. I didn't even want to call her Lilith at first. Like I said before, I created the story before I created the characters. In my head, what I told myself was, what kind of a movie would I like to see on the screen? Well, I would like to see a badass chick, right? And she's going behind and killing all of these other bad people, bad men specifically, because of something that happened to her. I don't know, in her past, something broke her. That's how I created the whole story of Lilith. But when I started looking for the names, I was just like, I really wanted to capture people's attention, people that might know about the mythology of Lilith. And I said, you know what? 
I'm going to look up different names for female demons. That's how I started. I looked up the female demons and that's when I found Lilith. And when I read about Lilith, the demon of mythology, it had a lot of traits that I wanted to integrate into my Lilith because the mythology of Lilith is she went around and killed men and children and babies and whatnot. But I didn't want my Lilith to be that way. That's why in one point in the story, she said, Lilith has been reborn. And instead of killing children and babies and men that haven't done anything, she's just been reborn to just kill all of the bad men that she can find. Yeah, I forgot about that. She devoured the babies, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. She was actually called the Night Monster, is what she was the called in, in mythology. Yeah, because I think it was like the back in those days boogeyman. So it was basically that, I guess. <laughs> when you were doing your research, did you see the sigil of Lilith? I don't remember seeing the sigil of Lilith. Yeah, there's like pretty much all the demons, whether it's Belial, Leviathan, whatever, they all have their own little symbol called a sigil. Okay. And the one, you should look hers up. It's pretty badass. Might be a tattoo idea. No. <laughs> Another one for the body. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. Hopefully it won't influence you to eat children, but... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Lilith's father, Kenneth, is uh, portrayed as a very honorable man in the story. And... Uh, from what I gather, was written with a lot of respect. Um, Absolutely. I noticed in the acknowledgments at the back of the book that you give special thanks to, I guess it's pronounced German? Yeah, uh, German, yeah. <laughs> German, okay. Who is your own stepfather? Mm -hmm. So was any inspiration for the character of Kenneth drawn from your own stepfather? And if so, what characteristics of German are present in Kenneth? Um, actually, a lot, except for maybe Kenneth's outburst. Uh, his anger at one point. My stepfather was every single example that I always wanted in a real father. My father wasn't very present. And when Jermaine came into my life, he came into my life at a, at a later age. I was about 15 or 16 years old. And every single thing about him, his how he was with my mother, how he was with me, it was something unseen in most men that are coming into a broken up family, you know, taking in this older kid. And he has two kids of his own that were much more littler than I was when he came into my life. And for me to have that much respect for my stepfather shows how good of a man he truly is. So, yeah, uh, I did base a lot of the good characters of Kenneth's, his sweetheart, his soft side, his emotions, how he carried it on his sleeve, how much he cared for his kids and his wife. I did take a lot of what Kenneth is. I drew it from my stepfather. Hmm. I did. Okay. And you said you were older, if you don't mind me asking, how old? I was about 15 or 16 years old. 15 or 16. Mm -hmm. Oh, in the throes yeah. of teenage years. <laughs> oh, that is, that man has the patience of a saint. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, you have no idea what you're saying right there. Like, he truly does. <laughs> At least girls mature quicker than boys do. I was a bonehead when oh, I was 15. <laughs> don't tell me that. We have two little ones. <laughs> <laughs> Two little boys. Well, well, they're under your tender, loving care, so I'm sure they'll be fine. <laughs> Good Lord, I hope so. <laughs> so one of the psychological aspects of the book is that Lilith gains a lot of insight from her dreams. Yes. And what I really like is that you don't make the dreams 
supernatural in a sense, as if some spirit guide is visiting her. <laughs> you make it about the symbolism of the dreams and what Lilith's unconscious mind is trying to communicate to her. Absolutely. So... I saw a video clip on your uh, Instagram where you explain the meaning of certain elements that commonly mm -hmm. show up in dreams. Yes. So what kind of research did you do into the uh, interpretation of dreams? I actually, I Googled, <laughs> believe it or not, I simply Googled what dreams can come from PTSD because I wanted Lilith's, her main mental illness to be PTSD. When a person has post-traumatic stress disorder, they don't react as the common human being because they're broken. Their mind is broken. So I tried to research what kind of dreams would come from that. And most of the things that came out was animal dreams, mostly dogs and wolves and such. There was a ton of different type of meanings of dogs and wolves. If the dog is whining or if the dog is rolled over or if the dog comes over and you pet the dog's head. But the ones that came more to light to me and I took and I twisted it into this breaking point of Lilith was the rabbit dog. If you search rabid dog dream, it'll show you someone that is, is going into a mental illness. It might be PTSD, it might be anxiety, depression, whatever it might be, but they're at a breaking point. And then the injured dog represented emotional status. So that emotional status, however you're feeling of the injured dog, when I integrated it into the story, I wanted it to be where she turned around and the injured dog was herself. So she saw herself on the floor as in her emotional status of this tender person that she used to be was now gone. And she was now facing this rabid dog, her mental illness right before her eyes. It was her mental illness, what she was looking at. And instead of treating the dog, she just gave into it. Mm -hmm. You know, as I was sitting here listening to you give that explanation of how interwoven the image of the dog is into dreams related to PTSD, I was thinking about, well, what is one of the major treatments for PTSD? A lot of people get PTSD dogs. Uh -huh. like therapy dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's I, ironic. I, it, yeah, it wouldn't be life imitating art, but it would be like as above, so below as, as in your consciousness, so below here on earth, we kind of find comfort in the, in the images we have in our psyche. Yeah. So everything is yeah. psychological. Absolutely. Everything is. If you think about it very, very, very deeply, everything is psychological. Everything comes down to your dreams and how you feel sometimes. I mean, that's just how I believe. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of psychological and psychological in more of the negative sense, <laughs> let me first give a tip of the hat for the graphic depictions of torture and murder in this book. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> In, uh, you know, in movies that have uh, animals in them, at the end, they always have that disclaimer that says, no animals were harmed <laughs> in the filming of this movie. Yes. Well, full disclosure to those listening at home that have not read this book, multiple penises were harmed <laughs> in the writing of this story, <laughs> as well as some severe rectal damage. <laughs> oh, that was my favorite to write. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been nice talking to you. I'm going to go ahead and go now. <laughs> So um, 
So what made you want to write such graphic depictions of violence as opposed to just sticking with like a more mainstream form of horror where the violence is brief or implied? <laughs> I wanted to come into the writing world kicking doors down. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. Swinging. I, <laughs> I said, if I'm going to make this book, I am going to make people twist and turn as they're reading. I want them to feel to hear the blood, feel the pain. I want them to read the book and have these squirmish facial expressions. I want the men to cover their genitals as they're reading. <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, um, I, I didn't I didn't cover my genitals, but I crossed my legs a little bit. Oh, uh, you see, well that, that's still that's still a win for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Um I wanted to really what I you know when I started making this book, I thought a lot about my favorite horror movies. And my favorite horror movies were hands down Saw, all of the Saw collection. Because Saw came in just like that, kicking doors down. They came in and they changed the game of gore when Saw first came out. And after Saw came out, a lot of other movies followed with their graphic torture and gore. Most of the time you would see, I don't know, you'll see somebody with a knife in the in the movie and then all of a sudden you just see the blood. You know, you don't see the attack or you don't see none of the actual realism of it. But in Saul, you saw all of that realism. You saw the breaking of the bones. You saw the crushing of the eyes. You know what I mean? So I was just like, that really made me squirm and twitch in my seat when I saw every single clip. So I said, you know what? I'm going to integrate that type of gore into my book because <laughs> it captured my attention. I know for a fact people are going to be reading it. And the first three words that are going to come out of their mind is going to be, what the fuck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just wanted to really come in with an impact. <laughs> yeah. And that's the great thing about literature is it's pretty much fair game. Yeah. Like, there's not really any boundaries. Like, I mean, I guess, you know, if you're somebody like Gaspar Noé, you can get away with quite a bit as far as film is concerned. But like I've read Edward Lee, there is no way. I don't know if you've ever read Edward Lee, but there is no way in hell you could ever put that book on film. It would be it would be it would be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> no, that some books, you know, I feel like my book wouldn't be allowed in a lot of, yeah. <laughs> a lot yeah. of places. Um, I tried to get it into one of my local libraries and the woman said, absolutely not. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, well, I tried. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's funny, though. I'm trying to think of a good example. Nothing's coming to my head right now. But you know how there's there's some books that kind of break boundaries mm -hmm. that because of either the reputation of the person or other circumstances, they kind of get this cult following. So it's like that one book is allowed right. in mainstream society, like but everything else that's similar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but but like any other extreme BDSM is just in poor taste and has no <laughs> business being in a bookstore. You know, it's just it's weird how that works. That's another reason why I wanted to describe my torture scene so graphic and in detail, because I said, if erotica writers can put their graphic porn to words, why can't I do this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I just said, I just went for it. Well, well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I'm obviously a fan of dark, violent, graphic, psychological horror. But as we've been speaking about, not a lot of people are. 
and the people that aren't tend to judge dark literature solely on its content, not mm -hmm. its quality. Yep. So have you ever met anybody that is able to park that aversion to the dark, to the graphic, and maybe told you, hey, I really uh, did not like your book. Mm -hmm. I just don't like that kind of content. But God damn it, if you're not a good writer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, actually, my uncle was <laughs> one of my first readers. <laughs> Uh, my uncle and my mom, uh, really, uh, my family, I'm really, I'm the, the black sheep of the family. <laughs> and I don't say it because of LGBT or anything like that. Absolutely not. You know, uh, my family is very accepting, very warming, very loving. It's only solely because it feels like I am the only one in the family that loves the horror genre. So when I came out with this book, I was so excited. And I'm just like, hey, mom, this book, you know, you don't have to read it. I just want you to have it because it's very graphic. <laughs> mm -hmm. And my mom's like, oh, okay, I'll read it anyways, because, you know, she's proud of me and whatnot. And she loves me and I'm her only daughter. So she read it and <laughs> she was like, she just, she just couldn't believe what she was reading. <laughs> and she said this that. did not come from my baby. <laughs> and there's, a, there's one chapter that I'm just going through her murder spree, you know, Lilith's murder spree. And my mom said that she kind of skipped over all of the torture parts. <laughs> she just kind of read over like, oh, okay, so... Uh, his penis is okay. Never mind. So, da, 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 and she just kept on reading. <laughs> and uh, my uncle, he absolutely does not like horror. He is a big ex horror fan. Like, he does not like horror, but he still read my book because he has a master's degree in literature. And he didn't like the graphic goreness of my book, but he said that I have a good way of description and how to give the story and. Uh, how to captivate the readers and to continue to read more. So even though he didn't like the goreness of the story, he liked how I was conveying the story and how I was pulling people in and giving a message at the same time. I wish there was more people like a mainstream literary critic that would be willing to review extreme dark literature yeah. and be able to do it objectively absolutely, like, without being opinionated about it. So yeah, absolutely. He, he he even rated my book and from his honest point of view, because of the way he doesn't like horror, he gave it a, a four star. And I was so grateful for that because I admire him so much. I feel like he's one of the smartest people in my family. And for him to have a master's degree in literature and give me a four star and tell me all of these constructive criticism was like it was five stars for me. <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? Like his four stars for me was just I don't know. I just really like the honest opinion of him, especially because he's family, you know, and family sometimes can be like, oh, yeah, you did nice. And then turn around and be like, oh, that was horrible, you know, but he was very, <laughs> very honest about it. And I love that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the other elements of your storytelling that I like is how at the end of some of the chapters, you quote either biblical scripture mm -hmm. or like some sort of guru dispensing mm -hmm you know, some conventional wisdom that usually espouses nonviolence. But you then follow it up with a quote of your own yes. that promotes the kind of eye for an eye mentality. Exactly. Uh, that we were talking about that Lilith, the demon, you know, go out into the night and wreak havoc. Absolutely. So were you attempting to incite a desire for revenge in the reader to get them really invested in the story? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I put those quotes in the book 
because I wanted people to fight with their own morality. Mm. I wanted them to read the book and question what would they do? You know, as we all do as humans, when we're watching a TV show, I'm into Survivor right now. (laughs) So when I'm watching Survivor, what do you do? You strategize with the people that are playing on Survivor. So while you're reading the book, I want you to also think, man, what would I do if I had this happen to me and this happened to me, you know? And I didn't want anyone to think, oh, she went through that, but she didn't have to do all of this. I wanted people to get just as angry as my main character. I wanted people to cheer her on, but then question, why am I cheering the serial killer on? (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. And then you think, well, she's not doing anything super bad because she's doing it to the bad people, but she's still doing bad things. So where do we stand here? (laughs) So I wanted people to just kind of fight with their morality there a little bit. Yeah, because if they're having this moral tug of war in their head of like, well, should I be rooting for Lilith? <laughs> it's, it's almost like you give them a visual representation of two opposing thoughts. Exactly. You know, the conventional wisdom and then Lilith's wisdom. There we know? go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a pretty solid tactic. Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I tried my best. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as the technical details... There are a lot of storylines where serial killers drug their victims. Of course, the Mm -hmm. the first one that pops into my mind is Dexter. Yes. But they they aren't usually very specific about the details of the drug or where they get it. Mm -hmm. So where did you come up with the idea of Lilith using the drug ketamine? Because I know from my day job that ketamine will completely incapacitate somebody because it's a disassociative anesthetic. And its pharmacology is actually perfect because it's got a short half-life, so it only lasts for about 20 to 40 minutes. So that's plenty of time to get somebody (laughs) subdued, but not too much time to where they become conscious shortly Mm -hmm. after. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, should I be worried? (laughs) (laughs) Well, when uh, when my coworkers, uh, some of my coworkers read my book, they were worried. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They're like, you've put way too much thought into this. Way. <laughs> I, don't, I can't be your friend anymore. <laughs> um, when I was doing the research for the book, I didn't want to be like other serial killers. Most serial killers in real life, which are mostly men, they would either, I don't know, have a gun in their hand or a knife, or they would uh, sneak up on somebody and choke them to death or whatever it might be, you know? And I said, I need Lilith to be much more smarter. I need her to be calm, cool, and collective. There's a difference between a female serial killer and a male serial killer. Men serial killers are much more impulsive. Sometimes they do want to finish the job quickly instead of slowly. A woman, when she comes in for vengeance, women are not very good. Hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. <laughs> I, I tell you, a, a woman's vengeance, and when her mindset is stuck on one thing, she'll take her time with her vengeance. So when I was looking up the drug of ketamine, I wanted her to be able to have this type of access and not be pursued by the police so much. I wanted it to be very hidden. So I started searching what would veterinarians give to animals, you know, so they can put them to sleep. And when I researched ketamine, I also saw that ketamine is also used as a street drug sometimes. It could be used for a supplement for meth is what I read up on. So when I saw that, I said, that's perfect. You know, (laughs) (laughs) 
So that's why I picked ketamine specifically for that, because GHB is also a very well-known anesthetic drug that's used for date rates and such. Um, but I didn't want her to use GHB because her main thing is she... Because of the association. Association, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, because of the association. So I said, you know what, I'm going to make her... She's a veterinary assistant that just, she's had enough, and she was in the military, and this and this happened to her. And you know what, it'll blend in well if it was real life. Not telling anyone out there to do this in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I don't know about ketamine, but um, like definitely now after the advent of the opiate crisis, I'm sure any sort of medical facility that has narcotics mm -hmm. is closely watched by the uh, DEA. But before that, I would assume you could probably get away with lifting ketamine from a vet pretty yeah. easily. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I forget the time period that this book takes place in. It's in uh, 2011, I think. 2011? Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, well before the... 2016, I, mean, I'm, I think. I mean, I people know. had problems with opiates, but <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. they didn't have their eyes really on it the way they do now. Absolutely, so. absolutely. Yeah. So let me just say that I love your dark aesthetic from <laughs> the artwork on the book cover to the video teasers you've released for both of your novels, which from what I understand, you do all yourself? Yes. I Is do. that correct? Yeah. Yes. So do you have any classical training in graphic design and video production, or are you just Actually, an autodidact? <laughs> I am an older generation of the millennials, so I just kind of learn. I'm a visual learner. <laughs> mm -hmm. I did, before I went into the military, I took one semester or half a semester of graphic design. But back in those years, graphic design was much more complicated than it is now. Um, because it was a newer software, you, you know, Photoshop and all that was still pretty new. It was much more complicated to deal with. At least for me, it was. And I didn't really finish it, but I've always loved it, you know. And after I got this book out, I started putting it to practice again. But I don't use Photoshop. I don't use Adobe. I don't use none of those programs. I literally use seven different apps on my phone, literally. So I take pictures. And it's all for free. I don't pay more for anything. <laughs> I look up pictures on Google or I might draw it myself because I can draw as well. So I'll look up pictures and I'll combine different types of pictures. I'll take the background off. I put it on some other background. Then I use a different app to create the effects. Then I, I use a different app to extract the music and put the music in. Then I use another app to put it all together. So it can all fit together. And then I use another app so I can make it compact and compartmentalized for the Instagram post. So, yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and I imagine these aren't like standard workflows that you can just look up. You're probably you get in there and just start moving stuff yep. around and seeing what works like. It's absolutely. You, you can just figure out methods that. You could probably start your own YouTube channel. <laughs> Call it graphic design in your hand by Francesca. Honestly, on your phone with six different apps. That would be cool. Yeah. No, but uh, I'm actually planning on opening a second Instagram to help uh, other indie authors with their promotions. Because ah. um, I've noticed that a lot of indie authors have trouble promoting their own books and stuff. Sometimes they might just put, I don't know, a picture of their book and then other books. And then that's just the same picture that they use over and over again. Or... I don't know, they might make a small short reel of a picture of their book with, I don't know, music in the background. And you can't cater to just 
your generation. You have to cater to the younger generation and the older generation. But the younger generation is the one that's going to get you, you know, a little bit further. So what do I do? What's the younger generation absolutely need? They need visual content. They need something that excites them. They need the music and all of that. So I decided to just start doing everything on my own and trying to attract that younger audience towards my book. And I don't know, I just, I play around with all of those apps quite a bit. It takes me hours. Sometimes I think my biggest trailer that's a reel, it's pinned to my profile. It's one of the first ones. It's uh, my actual movie, movie trailer for my book. That took me a day and a half because that one was pretty complicated to create. To make it look that real, it was complicated. Mm. The one that I shared last night? Yes. That was, I, I couldn't not share that. It's just too awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that one took me a couple hours too. And uh, I always try to put in the beginning, like, you know, this is SFX makeup, just in case. I don't want anyone to think that this is some picture of a real corpse that I found on the internet. And I'm just using it for promotional reasons. It's not, you know, everything that I use is just fake stuff that I find on the internet. And I just alter myself. <laughs> well, I read in your bio that you first got into reading and writing at age four with Disney books. <laughs> yes. And uh, I would have to say that was the same with me. So um, <laughs> when did you read your first novel and what was it? Wow. I actually don't remember novels per se. I do remember like those short thin books, the Disney thin books, like The Lion King, Aladdin, all that stuff. Oh, goosebumps. <laughs> mm. You know, I I never really got into those, but a lot of horror writers I hear that's that you know, when they were younger, that was their thing was goosebumps. Man, I remember reading the books in school when it was time for, you know, our reading sessions back in the day when there were still reading sessions in school. And I remember being so excited to just sit down and like go to the horror aisle, pick out goosebumps and just sit there and read that book. And at home, I used to watch also the, the shows. And I remember the little music of Goosebumps used to literally give me goosebumps. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, when I was a kid, that music was terrifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I spent, I think, all but two years of my school from kindergarten to high school in various Christian schools. So I, I don't think I ever had access to Goosebumps. I oh. think they were they were like considered evil, so they weren't in the school library. <laughs> so probably had, you know, the Left Behind series, which is probably, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read that, but if you're young and you're like, oh, the world's going to end. And if I'm not saved, I'm going to get, I'm going to get my head chopped off. <laughs> like, no, no Goosebumps stuff. No, none of that shit. <laughs> oh my God. You, it, it surprises you. Society for, for surprises you honestly <laughs> mm -hmm. well so is um the effects of ornarium is that your first attempt to publish or had you had previous books that you had shopped around anywhere no this is my first and only book i've ever had i've never had even short stories before this book um yeah, yeah so like i said i wanted to come into the writing world uh kicking doors down <laughs> yeah you came in you hit the ground running <laughs> exactly so that's for damn sure i know my significant other really cheered me on my best friend cheered me on but i'm not sure if anyone else was like 
I don't, you know how some people are just like, yeah, that sounds great. You're writing a book. And then they turn around and they're like, they're never going to write a book. That's so stupid. Mm-hmm. That's a dumb idea. Yeah. So I'm sure that there was a lot of people that said, sure, yeah, you're writing a book. And then they didn't believe me. You know what I mean? <laughs> but now I'm over here like, what's up? Yeah. What's up now? Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> suck it. <laughs> well, you know, it's weird though. I'm sure you're probably one of the few people that they've probably ever heard say wanted to write a novel and actually followed through with it. And not only followed through with it, did it gangbusters. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It actually took me a a year and a half to write the book. Mm. And you can tell it's extremely well crafted. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And in that year and a half, I went through hell. Let me tell you, (laughs) I I cried. I whined. I called my mom whining like a child. I, it was hard because I was doing everything by myself. I didn't have any help. Um, Not even in the editing part. I didn't meet HD Scarberry, my editor until after my book was published for over six months. Mm -hmm. So I had this book out that had a ton of errors and people were still liking and still buying and still giving me good reviews, even though I needed editorial help. So it really made me feel good about my writing and my story. I mean, not my writing per se, but the way I craft my storylines. I can tell you, if I was to grade myself as a teacher, my writing is a B minus. <laughs> but my storytelling, I feel like is an A plus. I don't want to toot my own horn, but I do feel like I'm a good storyteller. Not writer per se. That's why I need some help with that. (laughs) But I do feel like I'm a good storyteller. Well, so are you an outliner or a pantser? Hmm. Because I've asked people that question. And a lot of times if they are an outliner, they'll say I'm a very like bare bones. Like I, I make the skeleton, but then I just kind of, as I go fill in the spaces in between. I can say it's a little bit of both. I, With this second book, it was much more easier for me to go with the flow than the first book. In my first book, I wrote and I edited all at once. So that's why I think I was having such a hard time because I didn't outline anything. I just kind of wrote what I was writing and then I would go back and edit. And then while I was editing, I would say, oh, I should put this here or I should put this here. And that would set me back. So in this second book, I said, I'm not going back to edit until I'm done with the whole book. And that way, while I'm editing, I can add whatever I want to add or take out whatever I want to take out. And I won't take so long writing the book. So it actually worked out better for my second book than my first book, because my first book, I was still learning and I have no idea how I got here. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine just perseverance. I'm not a quitter. I tell you that much. I am not a quitter. (laughs) Yeah, that's got to be rough, especially if you're in the creative flow, like some particular scene has just got your juices going. And then you're like, you're getting bogged down by like, wait a minute, does a semicolon go here? Is this a paragraph break? What the hell? Exactly, exactly. So that, you know, set me back a little bit in my first book. In my second book, though, I'm almost done with my edits and my editor, uh, H.D. Scarberry, she's almost done with her edits on her side. So it'll be out by October, my second book. But uh, I don't have a specific date for it yet. Well, speaking of H.T. Scarberry, I normally ask authors about their editing process, whether they self-edit or have somebody else do it. And 
I was interested to know about yours in particular because you are the only person that I have had a chance to talk to that I have also had a chance to talk to their editor. <laughs> I, uh, Madam Scarberry was on the show a few days ago. Can you tell me what the editing process with Madam Scarberry is like? She's pretty laid back. She's very cool. At first, when I reached out to her, I didn't know she was an editor. I had to go through other indie authors to see what their process was. As anyone, we all need just a little bit of help and just one person to help you lend a hand. And from that lending hand, it was, he wrote um, Ungodly, Brandon. Oh, Braden Riddick. Braden Riddick, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. He was the one that actually pointed me towards the direction of H.G. Scarberry because I asked him, I said, listen, did you use an editor? Because I haven't read his book completely, but I read just the first couple chapters. And I said, wow, his writing is absolutely Mm. amazing. This is so great. And I was just like, I wonder if he had some help. So when I was reading further behind, I was just like, oh, he works with H.G. Scarberry. So then I messaged him. I said, listen, is there anyone that you know? And he's like, yes. So then he sent me her and she was very laid back, very good person to work with. We made an arrangement because I was a little short on money and whatnot, but she actually helped me out because she saw how much I was trying and how much I was trying to promote my book. And I don't know, just put myself out there, put in the work and be a hustler. And she said that, you know, she wanted to work with me. You know, she's a hustler herself. She has a couple books out. She does a couple of other things um, on the side. So uh, she's a mother, she's married and all that. So She's also a hustler. And I guess women hustlers see other women hustlers and want to help, uh, you know. <laughs> so do you find in the writing community that everybody's pretty much for the most part willing to help you out if you have any questions? Just Most, uh, most people, you know, you want to believe that this writing community or any type of community that it might be gaming, whatever it is, is a knit community. But I'm going to use another example of Survivor. <laughs> if anybody watches Survivor out there, no matter how comfortable you might feel with this knit community, you can't be too comfortable. You know, there's people that even though they might show their support just a little bit, sometimes they behind that smile is an envious mind. <laughs> mm. Okay. I don't know. I'm a true believer of people giving off bad energies when it comes to envying other people and you can kind of pick that up from other people but for the most part there are so many good indie authors out there willing to help and support and i'm a big helper and supporter myself i just like promoting other people's stuff if i see that they're working very hard at it i have to give it to them you know if i see a really good promo i repost it i'm just like man look at this indie author check out their book you know i I just like doing that because i feel like everything in life is like karma you do good you have good brought back to you well who would you say your uh writing influences are i have a lot i have a couple indie authors and i have a couple of the famous ones chelsea kane is one of the main inspirations behind me writing the effects of her nerium and creating Lilith because Chelsea Kane in her first book of Sweetheart, she describes a female serial killer, but her female serial killer is effeminate. She's very feminine, very beautiful, long blonde hair with blue eyes, such and such, but she's psychotic. The kind you want to just kill you? (laughs) 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 Just please kill me. (laughs) That's what I liked about her story because she made her serial killer so gorgeous but so psychotic like a like a harley quinn but beautiful and smart and 
when she wrote that serial killer and Archie is her other main character, which is the detective, he <laughs> falls a little bit in love with his serial killer. The serial killer captures him and torments him, but torments him gently and softly. She mm. caresses his face. She gives him poison as medicine, but she says, open wide, sweetheart, you know, stuff like that. And he's chained and he's sweaty. And I'm just like, how is she describing this and still (laughs) making you like the serial killer? You know, (laughs) It's like Stockholm syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) So Chelsea Kane, really, she inspired me to create Lilith, even though my Lilith is not feminine. And I wanted her to be completely 180 from a woman. Because I don't think there's a lot of LGBT characters out there that might be portrayed as a bad person. Most LGBT books are of love or the struggle of being LGBT or whatever. And I didn't want that to be a focus in my book. I wanted my main character to just, she is LGBT, but I just wanted her to be different. I wanted to give the LGBT more of a voice, I guess. Awesome. (laughs) Well, once again, very good book hell of a debut novel (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you so much so tell me about your upcoming novel on the other side lies the truth yes the other side lies the truth is a paranormal thriller what i'm trying to do with all of my books because i have more future books in mind i'm trying to create all of my books around something that people can help in the effects of a hinarium i point out the missing and exploited children. I point out unidentified humans. I point out the whole issue with missing people in the United States, numbers and websites that you can find. So with my second book, I decided to take a cold case of the New Bedford Highway Killer, New Bedford Highway Killer here in Massachusetts, and twist it into my own way. So the New Bedford Highway Killer in 1990 to 1993, I think, he killed about six or seven sex workers and left their bodies on the side of the highway. That's why they called him the New Bedford Highway Killer. Unfortunately, he was never caught. There were three people that were suspects and they all died in weird circumstances. One of them killed themselves. Another one died in prison. I think they killed someone killed him in prison. I'm not sure. So since that case has not been resolved, I decided to integrate it into this second story. And I said, what if these women on the other side of life can try to communicate with us and let us know who killed them? You know, so on the other side of the truth, I have a copycat New Bedford highway killer, and he's leaving behind severed hands instead of their whole bodies. He's much more smarter than the first highway killer. He's not leaving a whole body behind not to leave any DNA since nowadays DNA is such a thing that can actually capture killers and uh, rapists and and whatnot. Put you in jail and get you out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I decided for this new killer to just leave severed hands in the same locations of the original killer. And that's when I get the story started. So I decided to create the story around Camila Ortiz, which is my main character. And then Daniela Lopez is my other main character. And Camila has a special gift. Her gift is she's able to go to sleep and kind of transcend herself, her soul into the other side of the veil of life. And while she's on the other side, she can see whatever spirits want to 
be shown to her, whatever the spirits want to show to her, whatever the the spirits want to try to get across. They might be trapped. They might be trying to figure out. They might be there trying to resolve some unresolved issue that they had when they were alive. And the victims of my copycat killer are the ones that are trying to convey that message to her and her significant other. Now, I'm not going to go into too many other details mm-hmm. <laughs> as to no not... No spoilers. No spoilers, <laughs> but uh, things get very intense towards the end, and there's a twist on top of another twist, because, of course, I like twists. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, so what's the timeline on that? I'm pretty sure it's on your promos, but just for anybody that hasn't seen them. Uh, in October, I don't have a specific date per se, but I know it's going to be in October because I'm trying to get it completely done by September 20th. That'll give me a couple weeks to look it over one more time and then get it uploaded into the system. That's going to be good. Just in time for Halloween. <laughs> Absolutely. That's <laughs> why I, that was my main goal. I said, I need to get this out by October. That way uh, people that are into spooky season, you know, can get my book. <laughs> Oh, God, I'm into spooky season and cool weather. Bring it on. Oh, yeah. Sweater weather. <laughs> yes, sweater weather. So uh, tell me about your short stories. Are they all from horror prompts? Because I know some of them are. Some of them are from horror prompts. There's an Instagrammer, Julian Church. Uh, she's very, very cool. And she actually, she is where I started doing my first short stories. I met her on Instagram and I said, this is pretty cool. I saw her short stories and I was just like, she writes pretty good short stories, but she doesn't have a book out yet. And when she started creating these short story prompts, a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of uh, writers like me got into it. And it was a lot of fun for a couple months. I did do a couple of them from those prompts. But then afterwards, I just started going on my own and started doing prompts by asking my Instagrammers, hey, give me a word or a phrase or a sentence and I'll create a short story from that. So a lot of people have fun with that. They give me a word or a phrase or whatever it is. And then I'll take that and I'll create the short story. And so I think people like it. Well, so you had talked about, you know, you're trying to get your your novel out by October time. Yes. I know you have two little ones. How do you schedule (laughs) your writing around time with friends and family? I have a specific time to write. Like I said, I'm a full-time postal carrier, so that also takes up a lot of my time. I work actually from Monday to Saturday with sca- yeah, God. with scattered <laughs> with uh, scattered Saturdays off here and there. This is one of those Saturdays that I had to ask off. Ugh. Yeah, so my time is usually at night. I usually try to start writing at six o'clock. That's about the time that the kids start winding down. And then they go to bed around 738 almost. And while they're winding down and, you know, they're ready to go to bed and whatnot, that's when I'll, I'll take my time to write. But before that, there's no way I can write. I'm helping my significant other with them a lot. I want to spend time with her. So I, I do try to cut my time of writing is probably two hours in the night after six o'clock. So like from six to eight. And that's it. I don't have a specific word count. I don't tell myself I'm going to write 10,000 words. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I just tell myself I'm going to write from this hour to this hour. And if it's just one paragraph, that's it. You did a good job, kid. And then I'm Uh I'm I'm good. (laughs) Do you ever like if you have a free moment and something's just really grating on your mind to get out? Do you ever Mm -hmm. use your phone? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because if not, I'll forget a lot of my good ideas come when I'm working. 
it's my low time, you know? So when my mind is just in low, it goes everywhere. So then I start thinking about what can I integrate into the book? Maybe I should fix this part. Maybe I should go back to this part and fix this. Maybe I should add such and such. And if something comes to mind, boom, I take my phone out, write it in my notes. That way I don't forget. So what is your writing atmosphere? Do you have a, a designated place you can retreat to or? Uh, no, actually, it's right here, <laughs> right here where I'm at. Um, this is my room. It's nice and quiet. I have two air conditioners here. <laughs> <laughs> I put my headphones in and I listen to, believe it or not, horror movie trailer music. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so like that intense, that like anything that yeah. you hear on my Instagram, on my post. Uh-huh. Those are the types of music that I listen to while I'm writing. It, it puts me into the groove. It, it puts yeah, me into yeah. the moment. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your time in the military. I, I understand you spent quite a while. Yes. I had eight years in the military. It was all reserve. I didn't go overseas, not once. Um, but uh, I did travel from state to state. It was a lot of fun. I could have done more, but I was just, I was tired. I was done with it. I was, <laughs> yeah. I didn't want it anymore. It's almost a decade of your life. <laughs> yeah. Eight years. My God. But it was a lot of fun. I have no regrets within the military. It shaped me into the person that I am. Um, I'm very organized, very disciplined. And that's how I do my day to day as well. I even integrate my military background, even in the way that I raise my stepkids, because, you know, they both have autism and Sometimes you just have to be just firm and straight to the point with them. And it's worked very much with them. They're, they respect me. They love me. I love them. I respect them. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a learning curve from the rough military into having these two innocent children in my care. But I do integrate my military time within that. There's nothing I do in my day that doesn't remind me of the military. My organization with work, my organization and with my book, the way that I raise my stepkids, the way that I look around my surroundings, at life, at everything, everything to me, the military is integrated in me and there's nothing really I can do to take it out. And something that I'm very proud of. I'm very proud to say that I was in the military. Yeah, I mean, it would seem that it would take a hell of a lot of discipline to write a novel, like to actually complete a solid novel that's good. <laughs> that does well. So it doesn't surprise me that you have a background in the military. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, so what about, uh, aside from writing, what about uh, horror movies? We talked about that briefly. What kind of horror movies do you like? All of them. <laughs> All of them? There's no like, there's no particular subgenre like found footage or something like that, that really. Actually, you know what? I like crime fiction horror. Mm-hmm. Crime fiction horror is my favorite one. I think because you have to do a lot of thinking. You have to, while you're watching the movie, example, Saul, you have to figure out who's the person behind these torture devices, who's creating all of it. Like in the first Saul, I don't know if you saw that. The, that was that was brilliant. Come the, on, the, you got the give end it. of that <laughs> was like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> what is happening right now? <laughs> I mean, that's that's. It was just, uh, it was chef's kiss, you know what I mean, for that first Saw movie. And I don't know, that's just my jam. I guess crime fiction gore, um, I'm not really into, and a lot of people are probably going to hate me for this, but I'm not really into the old school horror. I'm not going to say I don't like it, 
but I, I, I don't know how to explain it. Like, you're talking um, about like 80s slashers yeah, and stuff like that? Yeah, the 80s. Okay. Like, I saw the latest Michael Myers Halloween. Oh, my God. I laughed so much. <laughs> so did me and my fiance. We were the only people in the theater laughing our asses off. You know what we laughed at the most? Was when she jammed that pain medication into her ass and screamed. I could not stop fucking laughing. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that whole part. I was like, what is happening? And then I had this brief moment that I said, wait a second. This is just how it was before. This is how horror was before. And I don't know if it was, though, because I've <laughs> seen the originals and they just I mean, I understand the campy movies. It's kind of like a niche kind of thing to still like them. They've got kind of like a cult following. Right. But compared to those, this was just like Halloween Kills was just <laughs> it almost seemed like they were trying to make a comedy. <laughs> right. That's what I thought. And I, I was so disappointed. I was really disappointed. I liked the latest Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I was also disappointed with that one as well. Um, well, now, which one are you talking about? Because there's been like four I, or five remakes. The one with the uh, gentrifiers. <laughs> the gentrifiers? <laughs> oh, I, I haven't seen that one. What? You haven't seen that one? Uh, uh, they were trying to change the atmosphere of where Texas Chainsaw Massacre was, and they were gentrifiers trying to change. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, God. I... I liked the gore of this. That's all I, I liked from it. I can give them that. Their gore was very explicit and detailed. But when it came to the actors, the main actors that were a younger generation with their, you know, younger generation stuff, um, <laughs> it was, I'm not old. I'm only 33, but I don't classify myself in that younger generation. And to me, everything was just kind of laughable. Mm. <laughs> So I don't know. I guess those slashers don't really. I think it's because I'm not thinking. I'm just watching the screen. But if a movie is making me think and making me trying to figure out who the killer is or where this is going, those are the types that I like. Have you, um, since you are a fan of gore, have you ever watched any of the movies within the French extremist movement? No. Like uh, Gaspar Noé or? Mm -mm. I okay. have not. There is a movie that you would probably like if you don't mind subtitles. I mean, it's visual enough that you really don't even, I guess, necessarily need the dialogue, but the dialogue is good. The whole movie is good all the way around, but it's notorious for being really brutal. It's called Seven Days. Seven Days. Okay. And it's this uh, guy. He, I forget. I think he's an anesthesiologist and his eight-year-old daughter gets kidnapped and murdered. My God. They find the guy. Oh, and so the anesthesiologist decides he's going to capture this guy and torture the fuck out of him. Oh, that sounds like and, one of my, my movies. And, I should really watch that's, it. And that's why it's called Seven Days. For seven days, uh, he tortures the living shit out of this guy. And it is brutal. I mean, you think about it. He is a anesthesiologist. Right. Let, your, let your imagination run wild <laughs> with what he does. He steals shit from the hospital and he rents this house out in the middle of the woods where nobody can hear any screams or anything. It's fucking insane. Oh, I would love yeah. it. I want to watch that. I'm going to, I wrote it down already. I'm it's set. I'm going to watch that one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you've talked a little bit about the kiddos and uh, your day job, but what is the life of FR or Francesca, I guess I should say, <laughs> Diaz, like outside of writing? 
Um, I'm an introvert. I don't go out much. Uh, me and my my girl, my significant other, Amy, she's also like me. We're completely content when it's staying in our house, watching a good horror movie or a good horror series or whatever it is, because she's also into horror. And I don't know if we're not here at home, we're out with the kids at the park or whatever. But we try to we're very isolated people all of us really we don't really go out to big events or anything like that i mean i don't know if it's probably social anxiety after everything that's happened with the mass murders and all kinds of stuff that's going on within the united states that has probably integrated into our minds that hey let's go out and have some fun and then all of a sudden you know something horrible happens so we're chill we just watch tv here we don't really go out much that's about it (laughs) yeah me and my fiance when it's time for date night i mean we went out last night just to a restaurant because we were celebrating something. But uh, when it's just, you know, standard date night, you know, stream something on television. We don't even go pick up food. We have it delivered. <laughs> we too. just don't. We don't want to fucking go out for anything. <laughs> us too. Us too. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, your uh, significant other, she's introvert as well, I suppose. Yes. Yes, yeah. very much so. <laughs> yeah, it's good when you can find a partner that's also an introvert. It makes your life much easier. Oh, yes. It's just, matter of fact, we have a, a trip coming up soon to Puerto Rico, and we're both trying to mentally prepare ourselves to be around a large crowd of people. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not used to being around a large crowd of people. We just don't want to be mm-hmm. around a large crowd of people. I don't know. Call it social anxiety. That's probably what it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Some of it might be like free floating inherent social anxiety, but like a lot of times it's for good reason. People are, people can be shitheads. Really? It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous world out there. Yeah. Well, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking with you as well. I'm so happy to be on this show. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So uh, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Reiterate everything we've talked about that's available? Um, no, I, if anyone wants to purchase my first book, The Effects of Renerium, the quickest way to find it if you have an Instagram. And even if you don't have an Instagram, my Instagram is public. So you can Google or you can go into Instagram at fr. Diaz, but with dots in between, writer, And uh, you should find me. If you don't want to put all those dots, I'm sure if you put FRDS, you know, into the thing or FRDS, a morbid writer, I should show up at some point. And you can find the effects of Renerium on the link in my bio. And you can find uh, more information of my second book, On the Other Side Lies the Truth, also in the link in my bio, which The link in my bio is a website that I also created. (laughs) I don't know if you checked it out, but uh, (laughs) that's where I got your email address. Oh, absolutely. So those three, those three websites, those things took me a couple of days too, but I had a lot of fun with those. So I hope Mm -hmm. everyone else has fun when they go into my websites as well. (laughs) Well, listeners at home, the links for her Instagram, her uh, Amazon page, as well as Barnes and Noble will be in the description. So make sure to check those out. And uh, Francesca, again, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to like, 
share, subscribe, and follow the show on Instagram and YouTube. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Vigilante on the rise, why is it surprising? They throw agents at your boy to keep the fix divided. Frequent flyer and I always preach to fly united. Niggas be so scared to fail, that's why they keep it quiet. God flow, I know you hear it, rock a pioneer it. Gave me the wheel, then a nigga had the power steer it. Steady faking, what you making, ain't no power near it. I bet this on your radio as soon as power hear it. Yeah, I wear my cape real loose, sleeves on in two, three, ooh, we am getting new cheese. Bruh, cowabunga on a routine, that's a True thing, routine, I made a new scene Under gray clouds, city lights 40 days, 40 nights It could be a short life, not a long one When you coming from where I'm from Man, this shit feel like copper Good, good Man, this shit feel like copper Good, good Man, this shit feel like Man, this shit Listen, I've been had the vision. Martin Luther me, dreaming about the riches. I'ma need the rings, I'ma go the distance. Do it for my team, bitch, it's my religion. Yo girl is some Christian, she ain't even Christian. They all want a bad boy when they see the piston. I'm all in my feelings, I might need a minute. I might have to pivot, I might need a digit. I learned lessons from decisions, messes from decisions. Niggas think you stupid, they be fucking tripping. Hit them with precision, I don't fucking miss them. Keep them at a distance, I don't fucking listen. Under gray clouds, city lights, 40 days, 40 nights. It could be a short life, not a long one. When you coming from where I'm from. Man, this shit feel like cotton. Yeah, good. Man, this shit feel like cotton. Yeah, good. Man, this shit feel like cotton. Yeah. Man, this shit feel like God. Man, this shit feel like God. Though.